You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I talk a lot about my dad um, because my dad's such an easy person to tell stories about uh, because he's just extreme and extra. I wouldn't even put extreme. I'd say extra. He's, extreme is a lot. Extra is more than, more than enough, more than you need, you know, when it comes to personality and kind of like just story and, and kind of whatever. Um, uh, my mom is a little bit more meek and mild, uh, but I owe a lot of uh, the good things I have in my life from my mom. Anybody have a good mom? Anybody have a good mom? Taught him some good things. You know, bless your mom. Maybe text them today. Maybe that's the message you'll take away early on Mother's Day. Uh, my mom's name is Marsha, but Marsha with a C. And Marsha is, uh, is good at a lot of things. She's a school site. One of the things that she's good at, at Marsha, is getting bargains on the phone. Like, she won't take no for an answer. She'll be like, I hear you saying that I'm not going to get my money back, but when are you going to give me my money back? You know, like, she's quiet, but she's just an assassin, a dirt dauber. She never lets go. And um, my mom always taught me never to judge a book by its cover. Did your mom teach you this, that people aren't always as they seem? She's a school psychologist, so she's always, like, thinking a little bit deeper and, like, digging into your motive, and you're like, come on, mom, stop. I I see you trying to read my mind right now. You know, that's kind of what she would do, and she was magic at it. She was really good. She was very perceptive. Um, uh, She was always listening well, and she'd always teach you to seek to understand before being understood. She's like, 99% of conflicts, they just happen because of misunderstanding. And if so, if you'll just do the deal of just listening better and asking good questions, you'll figure out where they're coming from, and then they'll give you plenty of time and space uh, to, to offer up what you're, you're trying to get across. But if you can just seek to understand first, if you go first, then, then they'll go second. Um, I remember this one time, uh, mom pulled the, the, the voodoo, judo, the, the kind of Jedi mind trick on me there. Um, with, this kid named, uh, with this kid named Jimmy, and I'm sorry, Jimmy, because Jimmy back there, this is, I, my first name that I come up with on my sermon illustrations is Jimmy, and it has nothing to do with coach back there, but not, not this Jimmy. Anyways, um, so uh, Jimmy was like, kind of like, he was just a, a rebel without a cause. He just marched by the beat of his own drum. He didn't have to like check in or out or with anybody, and he had this tree fort that was like 50 feet up in the air, like OSHA or whatever regulations would have totally torn it down. But uh, nobody apparently saw it, and it was, had like a toilet bowl that you had to like climb through to get into. The thing was bad, man. It was awesome. And so uh, my mom, you know, she was good for letting me just hang out in different people's houses and see different things. And so she let me go out to Jimmy's house for, for a sleepover, and um, Jimmy just didn't have to check in. He didn't have like a bedtime. He didn't have to like check in with his dad. He kind of got whatever he want. Like his grandma, he had a lot of grandma, gave him a lot of cash, and you know, some of us have good grandmas like that. And um, uh, I remember uh, we, were, we were playing Sega Genesis was this game, Sega Genesis. This was a big deal, color, and it wasn't like a Game Boy, like it, it shined up in, in, in the nighttime, so you could play at all hours of the night kind of thing. And I had like mine in the case. It was like perfect, and I had like 50 games because I'd go to Hong Kong and get like the bootleg games with like 100 of them, you know, and like, get, I mean, I just had all the games and Sonic and Taz and, and all those games and X-Men and so I played the game and kind of thing, and we were playing this game. It was two-player with a little cord on it or whatever, and I was, like, beating Jimmy, and he was, like, got super mad. He was, like, da-da-da-da, and he was, like, cussing it up, you know. He was, like, eight years old or whatever, like a pirate, and uh, took his game gear, and he, we were in his bedroom, and he just threw it across the, the, the room, and it just hit the thing and, like, shattered into pieces. And I was, like, this is, I mean, it's, like, he just, it was blasphemy, man. I mean, it's, like, the only thing we live for in game gear, and he, like, took this game gear, which is worth, like, two Christmas presents put together and just tossed it across the room, and it, like, broke. And instead of, like, crying about it, he, like, laughed. And I was like, ha, 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 You know, he's like, it was, like, a little bit awkward, like, the way they laughed. And I was just like, man, like, I didn't, I just didn't feel right. You know, it didn't sit with me. I felt sad. I was, like, needed a funeral for the game gear. I was mourning for the game gear. Like, I was having a hard time with it. You know, and, and mom, you know, good old mom, she'll, like, she'll tell you. She, she broke it down for you. You know, for kids, she was like, 
she, she was like, you know, sometimes um, when you see people like damage and hurt things, when, when people um, treat things poorly, it's oftentimes because they're treated poorly. She got me so quick with that one. I was like, oh, I, you know, like she was like, sometimes um, people that are thrown around in life, they throw things around. And a lot of times what you're seeing when, they, when, when people treat things poorly and treat people poorly is because they've been treated poorly. And uh, he said, she said, you got to remember this, Oliver, because listen, she said, you always remember this, that the way people treat you has less to do with you and more to do with them. The way that people treat you has more to do with how they treat themselves. And really in this room, you know, we might even talk about in the church and outside of church, people don't treat each other the way they want to be treated. They treat themselves the way they treat themselves. They treat themselves the way other people treat them. And really probably the way that they think that God treats them. Like when we see people, the way that they treat their dog or treat their video game or treat their spouse, like they're treating them the way that others treat them. And ultimately, probably from some divine way, how they feel God thinks about them, you know? So, so Jesus is doing this um, teaching, right? So he's always talking about, you know, what's the greatest teaching? You guys know it, right? What's the greatest teaching? Like love the Lord your God, all your heart and soul and strength and mind. And what's the other one, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> and, um, and if you follow Jesus around enough and then see what he means by that when he talks about it, is really he's not so much teaching two laws, like a first and a second. He's really just teaching one law with two sides. Like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is really love your neighbor. And really you can't do the second without the first. And he never teaches the first one. He's like, oh yeah, when you get around to it, do the second one. He's like, the expression of the first is the second. If you love God and if you're loved by God, you will love other people. Like that's how, that's how it goes. It's, it's not two different laws. It's, it's one law. So for example, I got a couple passages for you here. Um, you might have stumbled on this verse, and this is a tough one if you don't think about the law as one as opposed to two. Matthew 6, Jesus, uh, for, verse 14, teaching on forgiveness, he says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, he says, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So he's teaching on forgiveness. It's right after the Lord's Prayer, and he's going, um, If you forgive other people, then, then the Father will forgive you, which is, rubs us the wrong way, right? Because we live in a counterconditional gospel. It's like we're not living... F- you know, for Jesus, we're living from Jesus, and we're not living to get his love, we're getting from his love. So the idea of like going out and doing something else to get something from Jesus seems backwards in the gospel. So that automatically gets us. And then if it's not that blatant and obvious, he ups the ante in verse 15. He says, but if you do not forgive others, not only the positive is incurred, but the negative inverse is incurred as well. If you don't forgive others, he says, your father will not forgive your sins. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it's, it, 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 it kind of grabs you and harnesses you and arrests you. Like, as a person that, at all that knows the gospel, it's not that, you know, I go out and do something so that God can do something to me. It's like I'm supposed to be living outward of what God has already done on my behalf unless, 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 this thing seems backward unless, it's two sides of the same coin. Maybe Jesus isn't saying, if, if you go and forgive more people, God will forgive you. What he might be actually saying is, if you aren't living in forgiveness outward, you probably don't understand forgiveness upward. If you're not forgiving your neighbor, it's not that you're not forgiven. It's that you don't know what forgiveness even means. The parable of forgiveness is, is that one man is forgiven a lifetime of sin and then holds the other man who owes him a day's worth of sin in prison after he was freed from God. And then he gets you know, thrown into the wicked place. So what is it not saying? Jesus is not saying, go and forgive more people so that you can be forgiven. He's saying what? If you don't live in forgiveness, you must not understand it at all in the first place. So come back to my kingdom and understand what forgiveness is. He has another one like this, Matthew 5. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Not even like somebody else. You're mad at somebody else. You know, like somebody else sinned against you, so go and handle it because you're, you know, your heart's not in the right spot. He's saying, even if you know that somebody else is offended by you, go make it right before you worship. 
If somebody else is like offended by you, you should go and leave your place of worship. Maybe, you know, even right now on a Sunday morning to text them right now, right? Therefore, if you are offering your gift to the altar and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and come and offer your gift. In other words, Jesus is saying, there's no such thing as loving God without loving people. Loving God without loving people is bankruptcy. That's, it doesn't fulfill the law. The law is loving God and, you know, loving, loving people, loving God through loving people. Sometimes I think we think that the second commandment is an adjunct. It's a supplement. Like, I'll love God, and then if I have enough time, then, like, I'll, you know, do him a favor by loving somebody else or putting up with somebody else's garbage. And what God is saying here is that in the very, like, motion and posture of offering something to God, there is no offering to God without offering to people at the same time. It's a, it, is, it is a bankrupt philosophy. You cannot love God without loving people. It's not possible. And so there are two things of the same coin. Obviously, the most apparent probably is Matthew 25, when he literally says, by loving someone else, you are loving me. They also will answer, Lord, Lord, when do we go to you know, feed you? And when, when did we go and visit you? And when do we clothe, clothe you in, in prison and so forth? And, and when did we help you? And, um, and Jesus says, well, this is a reply to, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these, you have done unto me. In other words, when we go and, and, and care for somebody, when we give a cup of cold water, I mean, what is it? One of the books, I think it's Hebrews, says we might even accidentally visit angels. We might even care for somebody that's not from this place. And so we don't know. Literally, the, the people that we've never seen a person uh, that was not made in the image of God, and we've never seen a face that doesn't look like the face of God, right? So every face and every person is not just an extra bonus point to loving God. It is the practice of loving God itself. And so we, 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 it's an unavoidable thing. We're image bearers. We're sideward-facing mirrors, and we are loving people like we love God. It's not loving people and loving God. It's, it's we are loving people in the same way as we are loving God. The way that I thought about it is that if you were to think about the culture, the culture of the last 10 conversations you've had, the culture of your text messages, the culture of the, what you've posted and what you've you know, commented on, like what, what this passage is saying, what these three passages are saying and what really the whole entire gig for the first and second commandment is saying is that the culture of your relationships is the culture of your worship. What you are seeing in the way that you're treating people, First John says, how can you say that you, you love an invisible God when you can't love the visible brother in front of you? He's saying the culture of, of the relationships you have, not your doctrine, not what you're preaching about, not your Bible reading plan, but the way you treat people is the only thing that matters when it comes to referencing the way that you treat God. So you might say to yourself, man, if Jesus was here, I would do everything that he said. I have no problem with God's authority. God's authority is great in my life. I fear the Lord and I would follow him. But then he would point to your life with human authority and say, but why don't you listen to anybody else? Right? So first John is saying, it's like, it's not just the extra and the excess of the way that we love people that is the bonus point for how we love God. It is loving God himself. We can't follow him and sub submit to his authority if we don't submit to any other authority in our life. He was, he's calling us on the carpet on that one and saying, no, you don't submit to my authority because you don't submit to anybody. And how can you claim that you love the God you can't see if you don't love the brother that you can see that's right in front of you? And he's saying, right, so like I understand the grace of God and I'm here by grace and not by, by works and all these things. And, and so we have these doctrines and we have this slick answer that, you know, when we ask you at membership, that's what you're supposed to say, right? So I'm here because I'm forgiven, right? But then he's saying, but do you believe it though? Because if you believe it, we're not gonna reference it by your doctrine, we're gonna reference it by your practice. If you believe that God has forgiven you much, then we'll know it because you'll be forgiving people in your life everywhere you go. The culture of the relationships that you have around you are telling you about the practice of your worship. 
It's telling you about the worship that goes vertical. The expression, the way that you deal with people, the way you deal with people that can't help you, the way that you deal with people that can help you, that can promote you, the way that you deal with people, the culture of your relationship is telling you about the culture of your worship. And so there is no such thing as loving God without loving people or vice, or vice versa. All right, so Jacob, he's, he's turning home in the 30s of this book, in the chapters of this book, and, and he's, in, in so doing, there's a lot of stakes here because he's facing his older brother Esau, uh, which he has taken the birthright from and the blessing from, so it's interpersonal conflict, right? But um, he's also facing his sin and facing his past. And so the last time we left off, um, Jacob decides to come home and, um, and he is, uh, he's struck with fright, and he should be, because it says his brother, on the 20 years of debt incurred and all of the bad blood and all of the animosity and hostility that would have grown from the absence of being with his brother Esau, has sent 400 men to come and pursue him. And we talked about how Jacob is not perfect. He's not a changed man, but he's a changing man. And he's not just full of faith. He also has a little bit of fear. And so he creates a prayer and a plan. Do you remember this? He prays about it, but he creates a plan. And he, and he divides up his camps, much like us, right? In the divided heart of a man or a woman, we don't commit all the way right. We don't commit all the way left. We don't commit all the way forward. We divide our, our chances. We, we, we don't really put all in anywhere. We just kind of, you know, we delegate our, our, our trust in lots of different places, in chariots and horses and Visa and MasterCard and women and in men and all sorts of things. We put our trust and divide our heart. And so he's a, change, he, he's a changing man with some fear and some faith. And so that night, last, last time on Sunday, right, he, he, gets, he gets wrestled down and Grace claims him, Grace names him, Grace changes his name from the one who fights God to the one who God fights for. He's like, this is who I am now. I, I'm, I'm exhausted of my own strength. I sent out my caravans ahead of me. I'm struck with fear. I'm all alone. I'm naked. I'm ashamed. I'm tired. I'm sick. I'm hungry. I've got nothing else to give. And God says, that's exactly the place I'm going to bless you when you got nothing left, when your strength is exhausted. What is Jesus' discipleship plan for you and me to get you so tired you can't fight anymore, and then he blesses you in your weakness? Not in your shininess, not in your strength, not in your ability to do your own thing, but in your weakness when you've got nothing to offer him, he's ready to bless you right there. That's where it is. As soon as that happened, isn't it clear, right? Doesn't it make sense that as soon as that happens, he turns and he finds God was there all along. That's why he calls God the camp of God. And God doesn't just open up a gate, but he, he camps with us, he lives with us, he dwells with us. And so, and so he's going to go back home to Esau, and you're going to see his plans change. And that's the thing about this message that we need to take away from this whole story is that grace, grace, is, um, grace is not so much a couch as it is a vehicle. It's a car. And grace is anything even if it hurts, even if it's painful, even if it's tiring, grace is not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. Grace is power. And grace is doing whatever it needs to do through whomever it needs to do it to get you back to Jesus because that is the best possible thing that God can do. And so that's why grace is hard to define but also hard to not recognize in somebody's life. I'll say that again. We sit around and we talk about, well, what is grace? It's unmerited favor or God, you know, God meeting you where you are but loving you too much to live, leave you that way. And there's lots of words and rhetoric that we can try to wrap around grace. But all the words in the world can't wrap it around because it's what? It's power. Paul says that the gospel is not works and it's not talk. It's power. And, and so what I, what I would challenge you with is it's hard to explain, but it'd be hard to miss when you see it in somebody's eyes. You know when somebody has grace in their eyes, right? That's what's happening. And so, so, so he's not a perfect man, he's not a changed man, but he's a changing man, right? And, and so this is, this is a study, really, of, of how God, in his grace, has changed his plans. If you have grace vertical, you'll see it because it'll extend horizontal. If you're a recipient of grace, you'll know because you'll become a distributor of grace. As a, as a, as a receiver of grace, you'll become an instrument of grace. That's the idea. And so, so you're seeing Jacob before and after the wrestling match, and you're going to see he's not perfect, but he's changing, 
and you're gonna see his plans change, and you're gonna see his name has changed. You're gonna see he's different. Being Christian, right, repentance and grace is not about just understanding some philosophical doctrine, right? It's the changing of my footsteps. It's repenting and believing. It's turning from one direction to another. And so what's the difference between legalism and grace and what's sloppy grace versus, you know, abundant grace? And what's the difference between, you know, um, eternal grace versus, versus right now physical, you know, favor that God gives you on your life? I don't know. It's hard to explain, but it, it's unmissable when you experience it. And it's changing. And it's changing you and me. It's the power of God. It's not talk. It's not wisdom. It's not doctrine. It's not philosophy. It's the power of a changed heart. That's what grace is. And so we're seeing this, this, this story teach us a little bit about this. What does grace do in a person, and how do we know if it's there? So verse uh, 11, okay? Or no, no, no. Verse 1 in chapter 33. It says this. Jacob looked up. Uh, look up usually means it's like a divine moment. It's to, it's to account what God has done on my behalf. When somebody looks up at the sky, they're seeing something that culminates in what God has done in somebody's life. So he looks up, and there he sees Esau. God's calling him towards Esau. He needs to go face the past. Grace doesn't mean you just run away from the past. Grace means you redeem the past. Grace means Jesus has something to say about your past to redeem the wasted years. And so he's seeing this thing, and he's coming home for the first time. And he comes back, and he's terrified. And how many know that once you start following Jesus, it doesn't mean that you just have no more fear anymore, right? It means that you are facing the fear with the one that commands it. It doesn't mean you get bigger than the wave. It means that you have a Messiah that can command the wave. And so he's not afraid of you being in waves. It's not an escape from waves. It's, it's, it's planting himself next to you while you're in the wave so you can learn to look at him as bigger than the wave and the one that has authority over the storm. So he's looking at him, and there's 400 men come, and you're supposed to feel terrified because up until this point, you have no reason to believe that Esau isn't going to just step on this guy's neck because he deserves it. So he divides his children. So there it is. It's not perfect. He's divided his camp. Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her child next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. So um, right there, what's the problem? What's the problem with the blessing? The problem with the blessing is that people that are blessed believe that they're better, and they give their blessing away to go and earn their idol. And we've been talking about this the whole time, right? And idols make you deaf and blind. And so what that looks like in the family setting is that mothers and fathers, instead of surrounding and centering their living rooms on Jesus and, and, and the cross, they center and surround their, 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 their living rooms on football, on grades. They center it on beauty and on organization and all the things that the mother or father values. And what happens out of that? Then the circle of the children can't have equal value because one of them will be favored and blessed because they're easier to get to that idol. Have you seen this before? Isn't it the repetition of every human being in every culture, right, that there's one favored child, and what is it saying about favoritism? Not God's grace and favor, but, God's, but, but humans' favoritism is that favoritism is the fruit of idolatry. I like you more because you serve me better, because you help me look good, because you do what I want you to do, right? And so favoritism is fam in family is, you talk to any counselor, the root of all problems within you know, family constructs, right? So families that aren't redeemed in Jesus will have idols and idols will have favorites. And so Joseph, no, how do we, you know, where are we headed with this thing, right? Is there a favorite in the family? Who gets the little Technicolor dream coat, right? And a musical named after them and all that stuff, right? So there is a favorite. And so Jacob was favored and now Joseph's gonna be favored and the story continues. So the, the father's sin compounds on Jacob, right? But there's a difference though. It changes his plan. It doesn't mean he's, he's changed. It means he's changing. It doesn't mean he's perfect and put his life together, but he is putting his life before God. So he surprises us in the narrative. This is what happens. Before, he had this idea where he has his strength thrown ahead of him, and he hides behind his own strength. But now look at the order. He has his broken life here, okay, and he throws it out there. But look at verse 3. He himself 
instead of hiding behind his strength, runs out ahead of his strength and bows down as low as he can seven times. Like, like, the, like the, the picture is, it's not just that he bows down seven times. It's like as a long way off, Jacob bows once, gets up, steps forward so that his brother Esau can see him, bows again, walks, takes a couple more steps. The third time, it's a couple more steps. The fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh. The seventh is the perfect number, right? So it's in this complete humility. He's not perfect in his strength, but he is perfect in his weakness. He's perfect in his kneeling. He's perfect in his humility. He's perfect in his, in his humbling. And that is what the, the gospel demands. And so instead of Jacob, his original plan was to throw his strength out that he might you know, get Esau to either fear or love him or both. Now he's running up ahead of his strength and submitting to Esau in his, in his weakness, in his humility. He bows down seven times. And so one of the things, I've got three little points here, right? But one of the things I think that that we know will mark a person that has been touched by grace is you'll know it, you'll know it, not because of what they say, their doctrine, what they preach, or how loud they sing on Sundays, but because of how humble they are. Have you met somebody that's really met by grace? They're kind of over themselves. They're kind of done winning arguments. They're kind of done having to be the best. They're kind of done having to be loud, right? The quietest person, you know, like the person that's meek and humble and, and cries a lot, doesn't take themselves too serious, they're marked by humility, I remember um, during uh, this mission trip that I went on in uh, Ocean City, New Jersey, and uh, everybody had to get a job and, um, you know, support their own way to, like, pay for themselves for this one trip, and it was just good for 20-year-olds, even the ones that are excited about Jesus to go on mission, need to go get a job too, amen? So anyways, uh, and so um, I got the last pick because I was going to get this awesome job at this, like, Italian restaurant, but then they, they hired somebody out from under me or whatever, and so I didn't get the waiter job, so I had to get the worst job, okay? I was went for the best job, and then I was maybe going to get the beach job, which is the middle, and then I got McDonald's. <clears throat> so I'm up at 6 in the morning making fish fillets and sliding on that, like, ice cream grease because it just never goes away. It's like roaches and that. Atom bombs can't touch. Ice cream grease, it's, it's intense, okay? And uh, I remember my disciple, you know, he had to give me a little speech because I would be late all the time, and I'm just like, man, Brad, I don't even remember what his name is. I was like, Brad, you know, like, these guys don't get it. Like, we're trying to bring the kingdom of Jesus here, man. Like, we're on mission. Like, we can't be making McNuggets. Like, this isn't a big deal. Like, they can't be on me about being late. And he's like, wait, 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 wait. What, what is it about this whole Jesus thing and, you know, being on this mission trip that makes you think that you're better than those people? Like, like what is it about the grace of God that all of a sudden makes you think that you don't need to put on some sucker pants and some non-slick shoes and just to go make some nuggets? Like, are you, is that what Jesus came to do to make you better? Than, no. Do you, think that you, that you think because you're here on this mission trip and that you're ready to lead worship this Thursday night that you're better than working at McDonald's? Jesus didn't come to make you better. He came to make you blessed. He doesn't make you better than anybody. A lot of times the Christian religion is exciting or religion in general because it, you think that it means that you, you get to have this transcendent knowledge above everybody. Like sometimes I think we're Christian and stay Christian because it means that we think we get to know more than everybody. That's not what we're Christian for at all. Being a Christian doesn't mean you know more. It doesn't mean you're always the boss. It doesn't mean you don't have any fear around you. It doesn't mean you don't have to manage conflict. It means none of those things. All that it means is that you're blessed and that you're blessed to be blessed and that's all that there is to it, right? So what is the marker of maturity? And every church has to decide what a disciple is and what maturity looks like. And a lot of times we get off rail with this about, well, the person of maturity has the most Bible doctrine. The person of maturity, you know, praise in tongues. The person of maturity, you know, has this many salvations. You know what the, you know what the reference of maturity is in the church? It's humility. That's how you know. You know how somebody knows Jesus? They're humble. They're not talking all the time. They're, they're interested in what other people have to say. They're ready to learn from people in the church and outside the church. They're ready to love people that are like them and not like them. And so this is, this is what the Bible wants us to see. 
What is the very first action of Jacob, the one who gets wrestled and changed by name? He's got 20 years of business to go take care of. What's the first thing he does? He puts his face on the ground in front of his enemy, that you would see the grace that I've received, that I might get distributed to you. That's the posture that the Bible wants you to see. This is not about, this is not about oh, I'm a Christian now, so I'm going to bring you know, the kingdom, bring revival, and I'm going to be just dominating people. I mean, because it's all about me, and I know how to sing, and I know how to preach, and I know it's all about this gift that I have. No, you're a, you're a, you're, we're pieces of dust. We're dust. We're weak. Ten seconds ago, I was wrestling with God and barely survived to tell the tale. Like, being a Christian does not mean you're perfect. It does not mean that you're polished. It doesn't mean you get to know all the answers and boss everybody else around. It means you might have to submit to a Pharaoh or a Nebuchadnezzar. It means that you have to serve people that are arrogant and don't get you and don't respect you. That's what this means. This does not mean an elevation above people. It means a demotion to the feet of people that some of you, some of you might see the grace of God. That's what this invitation is, right? So, so it's about being blessed. All right. So then uh, it goes on, and, and Esau responds to this. Verse 4, it says, But Esau ran, and he meets Jacob, and he embraces him, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him, and, and they wept. Those verbs are, are supposed to be very kind of like abrupt, like staccato, like he did it, it did it, it did it. It's, it's got this kind of like emotional, you know, big surging moment at the end of the movie where, where they're weeping together and there's this reconciliation in verse five that Esau looked up. So he looks up and he saw, he saw what God did, right? That's what looking up means. It means he, see, he sees the bigger picture. He sees that God was with Jacob and Esau the whole time and he had given all these children just like he, he had always promised. And he says, who are these people? And he, and he tells them about it. And, and Man, I mean, it's like, I don't know if you've seen arms healed or whatever, you know, and I don't know if you've seen a, a blind person see. To see reconciliation between bitterness with infinity, that's impossible. I mean, what is it that God does when he has us wait for 20 years or build up resentment for 20 years or, or not be pregnant for 20 years except to show that something's impossible? It's impossible. You take two divorced people and you make them come together and, and go to Christmas together and and you try and make the gospel and the cross mean more than the 20 years of hurt and bitterness between it, that's impossible. We're seeing, right, with the racial discord in the country, it's a divorce. There is a vacuum of trust. And when trust leaves the room, it's very difficult to ever get it back. If anything that America could testify, it would be impossible if we saw reconciliation. And it is impossible because we've seen the years of it and nothing changes except for the cross. Family reconciliation is one of, the, one of the most targeted canvases, I believe, of what God is doing in the earth other than bringing people that were broken and bitter and unforgiving together at the place of the cross. If that happens at the cross, we know that the cross has power. Why? Because reconciliation is impossible. But reconciliation is what heaven is all about. What is heaven about except for people that couldn't find unity, not just find unity vertically, oh, la, 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 I love Jesus, right? But find reconciliation in each other. That would be a miracle. He wants us to see this power. He wants us to see the reconciliation of heaven as brothers, enemies, right? The one, Jacob, Jacob was supposed to be the one that actually Esau bowed down to. Remember, that was the prophecy, that he was going to be the big one that was blessed and the other one was going to come and bow down, but he's flipped the kingdom on its head. And instead, because the grace of God has been so powerful on Jacob's life, he's changed his name and Jacob is now at Esau's feet. How about that for a miracle? Reconciliation, brothers that are reconnected. And so what happens at the cross? The cross is the place where the cross is the place where your horizontal sin towards me is never bigger than the vertical sin I have towards God. Why is reconciliation inevitable at the cross? 
Because it's the place where horizontal sin means nothing in the face of vertical sin. It means I owed a lifetime of sin to him and you owed a a day's worth of sin to me. And so what else can I do except for forgive you in light of what God has forgiven me? It's the only place forgiveness exists. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a fact. It is a legal thing that happened at the cross that says that anything that anyone has ever done to you is not as bad as what you've done to Jesus. And so as you're forgiven, forgive others. If we're not after humility and we're not after reconciliation, we're not after grace. Grace is not a couch. It's a car and it's changing us. And we will know that grace is, is received at the point that it's distributed. And so every, everything that we're doing as Christians is moving towards reconciliation. We're trying to move towards people. It doesn't mean that you just like trust people and you're best buddies with people and now you're ministry partners with people. It just means that the direction, like have a stance, but make sure that from that stance, it's always directed towards people and not away. We're not letting go of the stance. We're not letting go of belief. It doesn't mean we just, you know, keel over and allow for untruth to be true or truth to be whatever. You know, it's like, but the stance of the relationship is I'm here and I'm for you. The reason, the way that you know that somebody has encountered grace is because they stop fighting against people and they start fighting for people. What does Matthew 18 say except bring the thing up to your brother not to get wind off your, you know, steam off your chest and prove that you're offended. What does it say? To win your brother. To win your brother. What is the vision for Matthew 18? What is the vision for any conflict that you would bring up to anybody? Do you get a grievance out in the air and have a festivus for the rest of us, right? And show off how ticked I am and why I deserve to be more angry at you. It's like, no, the horizontal sin is nothing compared to the vertical sin. And we are not agents just of grace to be received. We're agents of reconciliation to extend. And, 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 so, and so the idea here, the idea here is that, 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 that coming towards people in grace is about winning people. It's not winning the argument. It's not about being heard. It's not about, you know, being vindicated. God is our vindicator. He is our strength. Speak the truth. Don't hold back the truth. But make sure that the feet that we speak the truth with are in love and that we're moving towards people and that we're here to win people, not winning the argument. That is how you know, not based on where you went to seminary, if somebody has encountered grace. All right, lastly, Jacob answers. He says, uh, they're, they're children that God has graciously given me. See, this is God. This story is not about us, right? This story is not about the dinner table, about how you didn't call me, and this, this is not about how you didn't pick me and how you didn't stand up for me. This is not what this is about. This is about him and what he's done. And because of what he's done for me, this is how I'm gonna give to you, right? As I've been given, I'm giving to you. As, as he left the 99, I'm leaving the 99. As I've been saved, I'm moving for salvation. As I've been reconciled, I'm moving into reconciliation, right? So, so the love of God precipitates all the time the love, the love of man, the love of, of neighbor. And, and so he's like, look at this. This is what God has given me. He says, these are my female servants. These are my children. Look, at he bows down. He can't get low enough, right? That's what grace does. It's so heavy. It just, it, we cannot get low enough. We can't serve enough to outserve him. That's what grace does to us. Verse seven, he says, these are Leah and the children and, and, and they all bow down and Joseph and Rachel and they bow down too. Look at this, look at this, look at this, right? What, what, what happened in the first circumstance in the first episode when Jacob, when Jacob was scheming and conniving and lying, the Bible says that Rachel and Leah followed him in that posture. They schemed and lied and tried and stole from each other in terms of birthright, right? The same exact thing. As the father did, so did the wives and so did the children. What's, what's happened here? Jacob has bowed down, and no sooner that he bows down, his wives and his kids and his entire family bow down too. Jacob went from passive to leading. His family is now following him in grace. He has built not just a relationship, but a family of grace around him. And all that it took was one person to turn. You know, now is the time when family is a really great buzzword and everybody wants a little bit of family, but it's rare. Why is family so popular but rare at the same time? 
Because family is not built by Monica and Rachel and friends and all that stuff's great, right? It's not based on common ground. It's based on Christ. And family doesn't exist because family only happens when people build it through bowing. Husbands, like, like it, because we're leaders, it doesn't make us more powerful or more smart or more older or whatever. It does, make us, it does mean we need to be more humble, and it definitely means we need to be more responsible. The leader in every room is not the boss. The leader is the greatest servant and the first confessed sinner. If you want to be a leader, then serve the most and say sorry first. That's what the gospel says about leadership. So let's have a leadership class, right? How are we leading the nations? We're going to go disciple nations. How are we going to do it? We're going to bossy and have a slick speech? No. You're going to love people more than anyone else in the room. You're going to serve harder. You're going to show up first. You're going to stay late, and you're going to say sorry first. And that's about all you need. Go for it. Go ready. You lead nations. You're ready to go, right? Because nobody wants to do that. Why is family popular but rare? Because people don't want to serve, and they don't want to say sorry. But that's where family is. That's where family's built. This is, this, is what, this is what the gospel is proposing to us, right, when it comes to the area of reconciliation, is that everybody wants the family, but nobody wants to go first. And I promise you that any family that you've ever had, you know, that has actually represented something that's not just about common stage of life and fun jokes that we all laugh at and hashtag this and that, anything that really has to do with, there are actually, strong, here's what family is. Community means everybody's the same, right? This is what family is. There are actually some weaker and some stronger and they actually don't use their weakness and strength against each other. They actually serve each other. So the weak person in the family always wants to argue why the strong person's like abusing them and not listening to their needs and how come you don't give more of your strength to me? Like that's what happens when we're the weak one because like wah, 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 right? How come you didn't do this enough for me, right? But then the strong one wants to go and like do whiskey tasting sessions and pull everybody back in a corner and get away from all the weak people because they don't want to have to deal with the obligation of serving the weak and bearing with our brothers, so what's the difference between community and Rachel and friends and family is that family has strong people that serve weak people and weak people that will look up to and serve strong people. And that's the, that is the counter-nature, counter-cultural vision of what family is, and it doesn't happen unless somebody's ready to serve and ready to say sorry. That's how we build family. That's it. That's the fa family is only built around the bread and the cup. It's built around the cross. And it happens only when we're ready to serve, when we're ready to be last, when we're ready to be least, Right? And the blessed realize they're not blessed to be better, they're blessed to serve. They're blessed to be a blessing. And the people that are weaker don't think that they're worse off. They realize that even with jerk face authorities that God still works around and through them. And unfortunately, I wish I could tell you different, but if you want God in your life, you need people too. Because the last time I checked, 99% of the time, the way that God works in your life is through people that are not perfect. And you're going to have to work through that and sort through you know, the complicated mess of dealing with people that don't treat you well in family, but there's no other option. That is his redemption plan. He is bringing his gospel as an expression through covenant love family. Are you ready to serve? Are you ready to apologize? Are you ready to say sorry? That's the way that family gets built. Esau asks, what's the meaning in the flocks of these herds that I met? To find favor in your eyes. To find grace in your eyes, he says. But Esau, he says, I already have plenty. Esau says, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, says Jacob. He says it again. He's going to say it like three or four times. He says, if I found favor, if I found the grace of God in your eyes, accept this gift for me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you have received me favorably, please accept the present that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted. Have you ever known somebody that comes to Jesus late? Maybe somebody that's been the worst person to be around. And when they meet Jesus, they all of a sudden become your favorite person to be around. I mean, is that just not a gospel story? 
I mean, usually it's those eights, right? Not to pick on y'all, right? But it can be tough, right? It's, it's those people, they got teddy bear hearts, but they got armor on the outside. And they use their strength because they're trying to protect themselves against everybody else. And somehow Jesus does what nobody else can, gets inside that person's heart and changes their heart in such a way that it's unmistakable the grace that meets them. And it happens when they're 72. And you say, what else could have done that except for the gospel of Jesus? It's hard to describe, right? Hard to define, but easy to recognize in somebody's eyes. And you see it. And all of their, their stubbornness in the first 70 years of life is like, you know, how, how dumb they could imagine Jesus could be or how, how backwards or, 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 you know, silly or, 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 or small that, that following Jesus could be. For all of that stubbornness and hard-heartedness, he's only changed it for weeping and tears. I remember uh, Kyra's grandfather, uh, who largely was a big part of how Kyra's family came to Jesus and then ultimately how I was impacted by Jesus, was sitting on a park bench one day and a bird fell on his shoulder and he knew that Jesus was king. He repented right there and began to follow Jesus. In the last five years of his life, he testified as being the best five years of his life compared to the first 70 years of his life. Do I need to come down here? Is that what I need to do? I don't know if I'm getting any feedback. Um, <clears throat> but when you, see, when you see people's eyes, you know when Jesus isn't there. You know... You know, it's like when they're 15, you know what I mean? They're having a great time. And maybe it's not a big deal because they're ready to go drink this Friday or whatever they're trying to go do. But by the time they're 60, it's not cute anymore. And there's pain in those eyes. And, and the Bible's saying here that when we, it's not just when Jacob sees Esau, it's like when we see any other face, we're seeing the face of God. We're seeing the countenance of somebody that deserves to see Jesus. We've never seen eyes that lack the grace of God that don't need it. And we convince ourselves by their strong and firm exterior that they're doing fine, but they're not. And you can talk to any Publix cashier, right, in the middle of COVID who's talking to people and has any wherewithal about how people are doing. They're not doing good. And marriages for 30 years are dungeons without Jesus. They all are. Because why else are we saying sorry and why else are we serving except for Jesus, especially when it gets hard? And loneliness and divorce are prisons without Jesus. And this is the idea is that God has had him come visit Esau after 20 years, having not seen him and not known him. And he can see, he's saying, I see the face of God in you, but I want to see the grace of God in your eyes. When I look at your face, I see the face of God. But when I look at your eyes, I don't see the grace of God. And if I could give anything or hold back anything or take back anything or keep anything, I would do it if I could just see grace in your eyes. Because I know that's what, you, I know that's what your soul longs for. And it's not a joke. It's not a game. Like, this is why I believe that heaven and hell exists, right? I believe that heaven and hell are real places. And hell is the absence of God, but also the presence of God's wrath. And it's a real thing. And it's not something that, you know, old people did a long time ago, the reformers. It's as real as 2021 as ever before. And the reason I believe it is because I'm a preacher, but also because of the Bible, but also because I'm a person. And you can see that heaven can start right now for some people in life, but you can also see people living in hell right now. You can see people living in bitterness, and in greed and self-loathing. You can see people that hate themselves. You can see people that cut themselves. You can see people that continue to harm themselves and other people. What is that thing other than the very place of hell, which is trying to entrench itself? James says that when we speak negatively about each other, that the fire of hell is actually sitting on our tongue. So why is it that he chooses some people and not choose others? It's so that he can show to the world the one that brings the blessing, and the only one that can bring it is Jesus. 
And the two paths of the brothers divide and they never come back together again, except for this one moment. And then they divide again. You're going to read it because, because Jacob and Esau can't contend with one another. They're not going to live next to each other because they're not from the same place. And why is it that he chooses some and doesn't choose others? And why do you know Jesus and why are people stubborn towards Jesus? Because he wants you to know that you'd be him if it wasn't for him. You'd be them if it wasn't. If it wasn't for the grace of God, you'd be them. You'd be there. You'd be with them in that marriage, in that situation, in that depression and anxiety and all of those problems. You'd be them. That would be you if not for the grace of God. It doesn't make you better than them. It just makes you blessed so you can be a blessing for them. That's why he's showing you an Esau in your life. That's why he's showing you somebody that isn't walking the same path as you. So he says, I just want to see the favor of God in your eyes and I would give anything and I wouldn't take anything from you and I would hold nothing back. What would be the cost that would be too high or too expensive that I would give so that I could see the grace of God in your eyes? And so it, it kind of adds up. They, they, they can't contend with one another. They go, in separate and go apart in their separate ways. And I'll read quicker to kind of come to the close. But it says, Esau says, let's be on our way. He says, I'll come with you. Come on, brother. Like, we're the same now. We shed our tears. We, we set our, our things. We, we put our, our stuff on the table. We're reconciled now. We're the same now. But he's not. Esau doesn't have Jesus, and Jacob has Jesus. And Esau is going to need to wait not for his Jacob, but for his Jesus. All nations are going to be blessed, not through Jacob, but through Jesus, through the one that Jacob's going to give birth to. And so Esau's going to have to come away and wait. Actually, David is going to incorporate the Edomites, the Edomite nation that comes out of Esau's line is going to incorporate them and show the grace that's going to come. And so there is this moment of reconciliation horizontally, but Esau's going to have to wait on his ultimate reconciliation vertically. So Esau says, let's be on our way. I'll go with you. And Jacob says to him, my Lord, you know that my children are tender that I must care for the ewes and the cows. I need to care for my, my calling and the blessing that God has put on my life, that are nursing their young. And if they're driven hard just one day, I mean, if they were to live even one day in slavery rather than Sabbath, if they were to be living by the world, if I were to come out here and live in the world with you even for one day, it wouldn't be fitting. This isn't, this isn't a fit. This, is, this would not be where I could live with you. And so sometimes the gospel does mean goodbye, right? All the animals will die, So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly. The Sabbath pattern, not the fast slave pattern. At that pace of the flocks and the herds before me and the pace of the children until I come to see my Lord and see her. He will, his descendants will, he won't, but the descendants will. God will be faithful to that promise. Verse 15, Esau said, then let me leave you some of my men with you. And he says, no, I mean anything, anything, anything. Just let me find favor in your eyes. And you know, Jesus, like he loves people, he pursues people, but he allows people to walk away. Maybe that's one of the most expensive things, that grace is free, but it costs you everything. And sometimes it'll cost you goodbyes. And you're not the Savior, and you're not the Messiah, and you're not the Holy Spirit. And sometimes allowing somebody to go off in their separate way is what you're called to do. But he doesn't chase the rich young ruler. When the rich young ruler hears that he has to sell all his possessions, he turns away sad and leaves, and Jesus doesn't chase him. One of the most painful things we'll do in the name of the gospel, right, is a slow hello. That's great, but also a goodbye. And sometimes the gospel means goodbye. Sometimes it means parting ways. And that's some of the most painful things that some people will lose mothers and women and children and sons. And if you don't hate your family, you know, in light of me, then you deserve nothing of me, right? So this is the hard tension that, that especially in the Middle East and other places where, you know, national religion gets in the way of families, that the gospel will cause wedges. But that's sometimes what happens. And so they go their different directions. And so verse 16, so that day Esau started on his way back to Seir and Jacob, however, went to Succoth, which is an awful name for a town. Uh, Just saying where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock, and that is why the place is called Succoth. <laughs> After Jacob came to Paddan and Moran, he arrives safely. 
God's good to his word. God promised Jacob shalom, safety. It says in the middle of the story that Jacob tried to create his own safety. Jacob got tired and got blessed. He humbles himself and he throws himself at the feet of Esau. He comes back to Padamaran, Canaan, the place where his father and his father's father is buried, and he found the Lord's safety. And that's all that we have. The only thing that we have in this world is the things that God has given us, the things that God has graced us. Grace is more than a word or a doctrine or something to you know, argue with somebody about. Grace is power. And it's the power of God and the promise of God that's faithful to every word. He's not said any word that's void. And he's fulfilled his promise to Jacob just like he's fulfilling his promise to you. And he will take you home to pasture and safety. And after Jacob came from Padamaran, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem and in Canaan, the promised land. And he camped there in the sight of the city. And for a hundred pieces of silver, he buys in. You see that? That's the thing about the divided heart is we scatter our money. You know, we don't commit to things. Why don't we commit? Why don't we commit? Why don't we commit to friendship? Why are we so non-committal? It's because we're afraid that when we commit, we'll be let down. And so we hold our choices and, and power and control rather than trust our choices and power and control. That's all that that is. And integral life isn't just, you know, being honesty, being honest. An integral life is being directional. It's I'm here, I'm committed, I am, I am one-hearted, I'm one-camped, I'm singular in my approach, and I'm committed. I'm burying myself in this place. A person can't be buried in six different places. That'd be awkward, right? He's burying himself in one place. I'm burying myself in the promise because to be buried in his death is to be buried in his resurrection. And I'm deciding today and for my family that I'm going to bury myself in the promise. And maybe that's what it's saying to you. Maybe today is the die in the promise. It's to put all of your marbles in it. Not a little, you know, socialism and a little democracy and a little Republican and a little... It's like, no, put it in Jesus. There's only one kind of person in Jesus. People forgiven by Jesus. There's only one kind. And in the meantime, you know, as agents of reconciliation, like, we're called to call people into that. There's only one line. The cross is the only line that divides the living and the dead. Right? And so he's buried himself in this place. And so this is what Paul would tell us and interpret in the New Testament. He says, if we're out of our mind... Paul has to argue so many times with people that, that even though, you know, like just because he's quiet to not take his, his meekness for weakness, he is one of the smartest guys that ever comes to the church and everybody's all excited about all these other superstar, you know, apostles because, because grace has made him so humble, right? And so he's come out here and he's got to almost argue to, to these people like the, the, the reason why I'm not talking with flashy words is because I want you to see the power, not my words, Right? And I want you to see the power of the gospel. So he says, if we're out of our mind, as some would say, then it's God. If we are in our own mind, and if we're in our right mind, rather, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. It doesn't just comfort us. It doesn't just cozy us. It compels us. Because we are convinced that if one died, then therefore all died. And he died for all, and that those who live should no longer live for themselves. In other words, grace is free, but it costs you your entire life. Grace is free, but it's expensive. And we don't owe God anything, and no one owes us anything, but we owe everybody everything. For every face of God and every eye that we see without the grace of God, we owe them our life, because that's what he gave to us. So this is what grace is. It's not a comfy, cozy doctrine that helps us get in the club, right? Grace is power, it's authority, and it has implications for our everyday life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has, uh, the new creation has come. The old has gone, and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. What is the message of Jacob? What's the message of wrestling grace? Is that grace comes to wrestle you. 
It comes to change you, it confronts you, it hurts you in the best of ways, it makes you weak so he can finally bless you. But that is not the end of the story. Relentless grace comes to make us instruments of grace. Relentless grace wrestles us down to receive grace that we might give it and give it freely to be recipients and instruments of grace. And this is what it is. This is, this is what it means to walk in the grace of God means that we see God in the face of every person we ever encounter. And their eyes, if not seeing the grace of God, there is no expense that should be spared in order to see grace enter into the faces of the people that we encounter on a day-to-day basis. So we, therefore, are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Come home. The cross, the cross is bigger than any horizontal sin. It's bigger than any personal sin. Any, any way that you've treated anybody or any way that anyone has treated you or thrown you around, nothing, nothing is heavier than that thing, than that word. The word of grace, Jesus on the cross, is the, is the heaviest, most pronounced and important thing that has ever treated to anybody. And so because he was treated like us, we can be treated like him. And because he was treated like us, we treat others the way that he treated us. And this is the gospel. This is how you know you have the gospel, is that not only you love, but you love others as I have loved you. That you reconcile others as I have been reconciled to you. And so I have a simple question today just to consider as the band comes forward. And we're gonna have prayer to close up our morning today, but I wonder if God has put a face on your mind and a set of eyes on on your mind. And, um, And life is very short. And there is an illusion that, um, that the gospel, um, that, we're, that, that, it, that, it, that it gives us privilege without responsibility, that the gospel doesn't have implication for the way that we talk to everyday people. But in every eye that God has ever made, he has put a throne for himself and put the throne ultimately for the cross and reconciliation of Jesus. And so as you consider the face maybe that comes to your mind or the faces, this is my question, I only have one question for you. What would you not give to see grace in their eyes? If we really understood grace and we understood its implications and the eternity of it, would we dodge an insult to, to avoid something, right? To like get grace into the heart of somebody that we know and love. Would we hold back you know, money or resources or we hold back our time? Like, what is it that's too expensive to see grace in someone else's eyes? Because everybody's got our mask, right, physically, but metaphorically too. And everybody looks like they're doing better than they are, but nobody's doing good without Jesus. And nobody gets any better without Jesus. And grace didn't come to visit us just to live with us. Grace came to be in us to be extended to other people. And so I just, I just thought I'd put the question up there. Jesus says, count the cost. You might have to lose a couple friends. They might have to walk away from you to realize the blessing didn't come from you in the first place. It had to come from him. And so that might mean it costs you a goodbye or two in your life. Are you willing to pay it, Jesus says, to count the cost? Like, are you counting the cost of not only the yes to say yes to mission, but a lot of times our yes doesn't happen until we say our no's, you know? Our no's to our habits or our no's to our faulty beliefs or our no's to our pride, like, Sometimes it's about being an accountant and it's making, sitting down and doing a budget here. Like, what would be worth more than seeing the grace in your sister's eyes? Like, they might reject you, you know, because y'all have bad blood and y'all go back, way back. But sometimes reconciliation horizontally is the thing that cultivates reconciliation vertically. And would it be worth the offense to pick up the phone and call them? That's what I think the story's asking you. 
Do you see the face of God in your sister or your brothers or your neighbors or your enemies' eyes? Do you see their, you know, his face? And in so doing, when you see their, their eyes, do you see something that doesn't deserve grace? Because the reality is when you see their eyes, you're just seeing your own eyes. You're seeing who you were without him. And so when we receive grace, grace is not just a teddy bear, right? Grace is a vehicle and it sharpens us and changes us. And may we become recipients of grace and we might be distributors of grace. I want to pray us and close in this time. And uh, I know we're going to have some time for, for prayer today, but um, Lord, I thank you, Lord, for, um, for stories like this as we've gathered around this scripture and looked at an old story that probably a lot of us have read a lot of times, knowing that you're going to touch us and speak to us in new ways. And Lord, we're never too old for grace and uh, we're never too mature for grace. And so Lord, just that picture that we saw in the scripture today, Lord, that in the messed up, broken places of our life, Lord, that, that's not put together, that still has idols and favoritism, Lord, that we wouldn't waste our try, time trying to meticulously perfectionize our life, Lord, that we just get out in front of our life and bow down quick. Just get out in front of our life and say, this is who I am. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna put my life before you. I'm not gonna put my life together. I'm gonna put my life before you and there and be reconciled. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would come quickly, Lord. I pray that you would move our feet with haste, Lord. I pray that you wouldn't allow us to delay or overcalculate or overthink, Lord, that you are the greatest gift ever given. We would sell anything for great joy if it was to enjoy the treasure of the kingdom of heaven, Lord. I pray that you would make us just scandalous sinners saved by grace, Lord. That you would teach us of our brokenness, that you would teach us of your mercy, that you would teach us of your might and your awesomeness, God, and that we would less and less have living rooms of idolatry, Lord, but living rooms with the cross at the middle, that we would raise up disciples in the way that they should go, Lord, that we would make our lives about you, that we would give everything that we might receive this gospel. And so for anybody that's here on the edge of their seat that needs to give something up, that needs to run towards a conflict that needs to confront their past, that, that needs to take that step, Lord, I pray that you give them the faith to do it, knowing that you always outgive everything that we would ever give to you. And so I pray that for grace, grace experienced, grace saturated, grace received, the same grace that you gave Jacob and the same graces you're giving us through Jesus, I pray that you would just install grace into our hearts, that we might not only be <laughs> recipients, but instruments. And so, Father, for this prayer time, as we stand and sing and repent and, and, um, and proclaim your name, I pray that you would do a mighty work, that grace would not just be a thought, but that it would be um, a rhythm. And so thank you, Lord, for the power that you're about to just impart into us um, by your goodness. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.